to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. The title this morning is The Mystery Revealed. The Mystery Revealed. The theme is the church is a mystery and it's a prayer for power and knowledge. This is the last chapter in the doctrinal section of this letter. We've learned that the church is a body and a temple. And this is it here. Our body is the temple and the the church is a body. And now we learn that church is a mystery. So let's begin in chapter 3 with verse 1. And Paul says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you, uh, for you Gentiles. At the end of chapter 2, Paul is sharing a wonderful truth. That Jesus Christ has broken down the walls that once divided men into Jews and Gentiles. And that he's made us all one in Christ. And that we Gentiles, who were once without Christ, who were once aliens from the citizenship of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And now we share in the covenants and the promises that God gave to the nation of Israel because of Abraham. So this wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ is to the Gentiles. And we Gentiles can share in the wonders of God's grace through Jesus Christ. We're brought in and made partakers of the covenants and the promises. And that's why Paul said, for this reason, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. And the reason Paul is in prison is because he took the gospel to the Gentiles, which upset the Jews. Now, the Gentiles are given new privileges that were mentioned in chapter 2. And those who are afar off, that is strangers, without hope, without God, are now brought in through Jesus Christ. Look at verses 2 through 6. Paul says, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that, they re- how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery, which in other ages were not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. In Scripture, the word mystery refers to something that was previously unknown or hidden, but it's now revealed because the timing is right. The mystery is of how Jews and Gentiles are heirs together. It's based is based on God's plan. That is his, his dispensation or his time of grace. Paul is speaking of the divine plan and arrangement by which God had called and sent him to the Gentiles. And Paul's ministry was different and it was special compared to the other apostles. The mystery was that the Gentiles and Israel were placed in the church on the same basis. And that is by faith in Christ, They were both brought into a new body, which is the church. Christ is the head of that new body. The church is one body, and it's made up both of Jew and Gentile, and Christ is the head of that body. Verse 7. 
And he goes on to say, Of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Paul didn't get a big head or think that he was better than any of the other apostles just because this divine mystery was revealed to him that he was the apostle to the Gentiles. He calls himself nothing more than a minister, which means a worker or a helper or deacon. Verse 8. He says, to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul knew he was ministering, not because he deserved it, though. He knew he was ministering, not because he deserved to serve, but totally because of the grace of God. You see, the the closer we get to the Lord, the more aware we are of the sin in our lives, that went unnoticed before. The closer Paul walked with the Lord, the more amazed he was that God would use him. He said, man, I'm the least of all the saints. Now, Paul's message wasn't a feel-good philosophy. Paul's message was totally Jesus Christ. His truths and his blessings, which he called the unsearchable riches of Christ. All the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 9. He says, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. The method of Paul's ministry wasn't just to tell, them, uh, tell all men to hear about the mystery of Christ, but to make them see it through the working of God in his own life. In verse 10 and 11, he goes on to say, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and power in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is a minister, he's a worker, he's a helper of the gospel of grace, not only that all men might see the mystery of grace, but that the angels might see it too. So God's intention was to reveal to these angels in heavenly places by his church the manifold wisdom of God. Verse 12, where he says now, he says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Because of the great goals of the mystery that Paul has mentioned, Paul's willing to suffer going to prison for them. He didn't want the Ephesians to be discouraged because the imprisonment of Paul was working for his good and their ministry. I'm sorry, and their glory. Obeying Jesus, as you know, obeying Jesus isn't always easy. There are are times that, you know, he, he asks us to do things that, you know, maybe we don't want to do or are hard to do. He calls you, though, to be willing to endure pain so that God's message of salvation can reach the whole world. Verses 19 and 20, well, not verse 19, uh, 14 through 19. And he says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the, fam- the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, length, 
depth, and height, to know the love of Christ, which patches, passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Here is Paul's prayer for power and knowledge. Why did Paul pray for the people to receive power and knowledge? Because he was really interested in these Ephesians. He wanted them to take part in the great truth of this divine ministry. And God's plan, uh, in God's plan, where we live and to experience all the riches of his grace in Jesus Christ. Now in these verses, 14 through 19, Paul prays for four things for the Ephesian elders. He prays, first of all, notice it says, that the believers might be strengthened with might or power through his spirit in the inner man. The spiritual nature of the believer needs prayer just as much as the physical nature of the believer. Without thinking, we often neglect the spiritual and we pay all the attention to the physical. You know, we, 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 we work out the physical, you know, run, we go to the gym, we eat well, we, we take care of the physical. But Paul prays for the inner man because he knows that the outward man is perishing a day by day. It, every day is passing away. And no matter how much we work out these bodies or take care of them or do whatever we do to, to take care of the, of the physical, it's going to fade away anyway. You see, we need power to live the Christian life because that's not an easy thing to do. We need to grow in the grace of God and we need to grow into full maturity. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. We need to be renewed day by day, every single day. We tend to pray more for the outward man than the inward spirit. We need to do that. We need to pray. We do need to pray, though, for the physical needs, all right? Paul did. Paul prayed for himself. Remember, he prayed three times and asked God to remove the thorn in his flesh. The Lord prayed. The Lord prayed for his needs. He said, give us this day our daily bread. But we need to remember that the spiritual nature of the believer needs just as much prayer as the physical. Only the Holy Spirit can supply the power uh, living and growth for the full maturity of the believer. The second thing Paul prayed for for the church, he said, notice, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The purpose for being strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now the word dwell here literally means to settle down and be at home. Is Jesus at home in your heart? Paul says, my prayer is that Jesus would be comfortable in you. Now, there's a little book. You may have heard of it. It's been out for a long time. It's a little booklet called My Heart, Christ's Home. And the author is Robert Munger. And the booklet pictures the Christian life as a house where Jesus goes from room to room. He goes to the library, which is the mind. And there Jesus finds all kinds of trash, worthless things to read that have nothing, and, and, and nothing for and can do this for the spirit, the, natural man, the, the spiritual man. So he throws it all away, and he replaces those things with his word. Then he goes to the dining room of appetite, where he finds a worldly menu with all kinds of sinful pleasures and cravings of the flesh. 
He replaces things like prestige and materialism and, and lust with humility, meekness, and love and all the other qualities that believers should desire. Then he goes to the living room of fellowship where he finds a lot of worldly friends and activities. He goes to the workshop where only toys are being made. He goes to the closet where hidden sins are kept there. And then he goes to the whole house. Only after he cleaned every room, closet, and corner of sin and foolishness could Jesus settle down and be at home there. You see, Jesus comes into our hearts. That's his house the moment that he saves us. But he can't live there comfortably and satisfactorily until all the sin is cleaned up and filled with his will. God is gracious beyond our understanding and he's infinitely patient. And he continues to love those particular children of his who insist on rejecting his will. But he can't be happy or satisfied in that kind of heart. You see, he can't be totally at home until he's allowed to live in our hearts through the continuing faith that trusts him to be Lord over every part of our lives. How awesome and wonderful that the true holy God wants to, I said wants to live in our hearts and to be at home there and to rule there. Jesus said in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will. Not he might. He said, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and he will come to him and make our abode with him or our home with him. Jesus didn't come to visit us. He didn't come to just stay for a while. He came to stay, to be a permanent resident through the Holy Spirit to live in our lives. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and abide is the key word here. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. You see, the word abide means to stay in a given place, state, or relation. So Jesus said, if you abide in your relationship with me, and I with you, you will bear much fruit. Because without me, you can do nothing. The third thing that Paul prayed for the Ephesian church... Paul prays for the believers to be rooted and grounded in love. The word rooted refers to plant life. The word grounded refers to architecture, to stability. In other words, being made strong inwardly by God's spirit leads to Christ being at home in our hearts. Which leads to love beyond our understanding. So the result of yielding to the Holy Spirit's power and submitting to Christ's lordship in our hearts is love. When Jesus settles down in our lives, his love starts to show in us. And it starts to, to, to show through us. And when Jesus is free to live in our hearts, we become rooted and grounded in love. In other words, settled on a strong foundation of love. God wants more than anything for his children to sincerely and totally love each other just the way he loves us. Love is the first fruit of the Spirit from which all the other graces flow out of in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love is a selfless attitude. A selfless attitude. Biblical love is a matter of the will. In other words, it's a choice. 
It's not a matter of feeling or emotion that you base your love on, although they are a part of love. God's loving the world wasn't just a feeling. It resulted in, his, in sending his only son to die for the world. Love is selfless giving. And giving and giving till you can't give no more. Just like Jesus said, he gave and he gave, he, he gave until he gave his life. He gave it all. So again, it's, it's giving. It's the very nature and essence of love to deny self and to give to others. Biblical love, in, in, in a nutshell, is doing what's best for the other person. Jesus didn't say greater love has no one than to have warm feelings for his friends. He said greater love has no one than greater love has no one than this that one may lay down his life for his friends. In obeying the Father's will, the Father's loving will to redeem the world, Jesus willingly and lovingly gave himself to us. Philippians 2, 6, 8, Paul said, He, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of dying on the cross. Man, that's love in its most perfect form. And it's this divine attitude of self-sacrificing love that every believer should have in himself. It's whatever it takes, even to the point of death. We can, have this, we can only have this kind of love when we, when we let Jesus work his love through us. We can't do anything Jesus commands without Jesus himself. That's why he said, you can do nothing without me. So we can't do anything that Jesus commands without Jesus himself, least of all his command to love. And he's commanded us to love. We can only love as Jesus loves when we let him have free reign in our hearts. When the Holy Spirit empowers our lives and we obey Jesus as the Lord of our hearts, our sins and weaknesses. And those things are dealt with. Again, uh, sins and weaknesses. When those are dealt with and when we find ourselves wanting to serve others and wanting to sacrifice for them and serve them. is because Christ's loving nature has truly become our own. Loving is the supernatural attitude of the Christian because love is the nature of Christ. When a Christian doesn't love, he has to do it intentionally, with effort, just like he has to do, uh, has to, uh, to, do to hold his breath. To become continually unloving, you must continually resist Jesus as the Lord of your heart. Just like breathing. When Jesus has a rightful place in our hearts, we don't have to be told to love, just like we don't have to be told to breathe. It's natural. Eventually, it has to happen. Because loving is as natural to the spiritual person as breathing is to the natural person. No, it's not natural for the Christian to be unloving. It's not natural. We always have a tendency to blame somebody else for my, my unloving attitude. But it's still possible to be disobedient when it comes to love. Just as loving is determined by the will and not by circumstances or other people, so is not loving. If a husband or wife fail to love each other, it's never because of the other person. 
But, when there's, but that seems to be the accusation. It's because of them. And it, and, it, and it has nothing to do, it's never because of the other person, no matter what the, person, the other person may have done. You don't fall in or out of agape love because it's something that's controlled by the will. You choose to stop loving. You choose to stop loving. It's agape love that God commands husbands and wives to have for each other. The love that each person controls by their own act of will, their own choice. Strained relations between husbands and wives or co-workers or brothers and sisters in the church um, or, or any others is never a matter of, well, we're incompatible or it's a personality conflict. It's always a matter of sin. Sin. The Christian is to love everyone they have contact with, especially their fellow Christians. Loving others is an act of obedience and not loving them is an act of disobedience. John said in 1 John 4, 20 and 21, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. That's pretty straightforward, but that's God's word. The absence of love means the presence of sin. The absence of love means there's a presence of sin. And the absence of love has nothing at all to do with what's happening to us. But it has everything to do with, hap- with what's happening in us. Sin and love are enemies. Because sin and God are enemies, they cannot live together in the same heart. It's a contradiction. Because where one is, the other isn't. The loveless life is the ungodly life, and the godly life is the serving, caring, tender-hearted, affectionate, self-giving, self-sacrificing, all-embracing life of Christ's love through the believer. And then the last thing Paul prayed for the, uh, the, the Ephesian believers, that they may be filled with all the fullness of love. When we're rooted and grounded in love, then we become able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and height and depth of love. We can't understand the fullness of love unless we're totally absorbed in love, unless it's the very root and ground of our being. It can't be really understood until it's experienced. And yet the experience and working of love that Paul is talking about here It's not emotional or personal. It's not just nice feelings or warm feelings that bring us this understanding. It's the actual working of the Holy Spirit and God's Son in our lives to produce a love that's pure and sincere and selfless and serving. To be rooted and grounded in love requires being rooted and grounded in God because He is love. When we're saved... God's love is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us, Paul said in Romans 5, 5. And you know what? Love is available to every Christian because Jesus is available to every Christian. And Paul prays that we will become able to understand with all the saints the love of God. Love isn't just for the easygoing Christian. 
or the naturally pleasant and, fr- and friendly Christian. A lot of times people see somebody that's, ex- that's exhibiting the love of God and the, the kindness. Oh, that, oh, that person is unique. There, there's something special about them. Not any more than you or I. It's just that they're living it. They're doing it. They're choosing to be what God has called them to be. And it's not dependent upon the person that they're loving. You know, Jesus said to love those who hate you, love those who persecute you, love those who do, do all kinds of horrible things to you. And there's no bottom line that says, if they're nice. <laughs> it's a command. Just do it. And remember, we're, we're, not, we're not doing it because the person deserves it. We're doing it because Jesus asks us. It's a command. It's a requirement. And it has nothing to do with anybody but us. Understanding God's love comes from being continually absorbed in the things of God and especially in his word. You know what the psalmist said that, you know, for, for those who love God's word, nothing causes them to stumble. They have such a great peace that nothing or no one causes them to stumble. And it's commanded for every Christian to love the saints. To understand what is the width and length and height and depth of love is to understand it in its fullness. Love goes in every direction and it goes the farthest distance. The width, the length, the height, and the depth represents love's vastness and love's love's completeness. In whatever direction we look, we can see the love of God. Now, Paul isn't contradicting himself when he says, to know the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. Paul isn't speaking here of our knowing the love that we are to have for Christ, but to know the love of Christ. You see, the world can't comprehend the great love that Jesus has because they can't understand Jesus. Worldly love is based on attraction. So as long as that, that attraction lasts, goes on, then we have the attraction. Christ's love is based on his own nature, so it lasts forever. Worldly love lasts until it's offended or rejected. And boy, isn't that the truth? We love the lovable. We love those who love us and are kind to us and always you know, nice to us and say nice things to us. But the minute we think they've done something that we don't like or we're offended, we turn it off. We scratch them off of our list. We're done with them. That's not the love of Christ. Worldly love continues to, to, to love and to love even when we're offended or rejected. And Christ's love goes on in spite of every offense and every rejection. Worldly love, again, worldly love loves for what it can get. Christ's love loves for what it can give. What is beyond the world's understanding is to be normal living for the child of God. How can you do that? How can you love that person after what they did to you or said to you? In the world's eyes, hey, you know what? They'd write them off. But that kind of living is to be normal for the child of God. The inner strengthening of the Holy Spirit leads to the indwelling of Christ, which leads to abundant love, which leads to God's fullness in us. To be filled up with all the fullness of God, as Paul is praying for the Ephesian church here, is is beyond our understanding. 
You know, it, it's, it's mind-boggling and it's beyond this description. There's no way that our earthly minds can grasp that truth. We can only believe it and thank God for it. Now, John said elsewhere in the scripture, he said, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. And the word behold is a word that means something that's not seen before. It says, look at this. It's like, it's like John saying, man, this is like from outer space, man. We ain't never seen anything like this before. What kind of love is that that God has loved us with? And that's the love that, that Paul is praying that the Ephesian church finds. And the love that we should all have to be filled up with all the fullness of God. There's no way that our earthly minds can grasp that truth. We just thank Him for it, and we just believe it. The word fullness means to make full, or fill, or to the full. It speaks of total control. To be filled up to all the fullness of God. It means to be totally controlled by him and nothing left to self. To be filled with God is to be emptied of self. It's not to have a lot of God and a little of self. We're not, you know, kind of sharing in this thing here, no. It's all of God and none of self. And Paul talks about this more than once in Ephesians. Here Paul talks about the fullness of God. In chapter 4.13, he's going to talk about the fullness of Christ. And in chapter 5.18, he's going to talk about the fullness of the Spirit. Let's, Let's close now with verses 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. When the Holy Spirit has empowered us, and Jesus has indwelt us, and love has controlled us, and God has filled us to his fullness, then, verse 20, comes into action. When all of those things have taken place by the Holy Spirit, then he, God, is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. But until those conditions are met, empowered by the Spirit, and dwelt by Christ, controlled by Christ, and filled with His fullness. Until those conditions are met, God's working in us is limited. But when they are met, His working is, in us is unlimited. You see, it's our yieldedness to God. It's our submission to God, our giving everything over to God that makes God able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. See, we limit God. We are the only thing that can limit God. Think of that. The all-powerful God is limited by you and me. We limit Him by not obeying His commands, by not doing what He tells us. He wants to do so much with us, and He says He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. But we have to meet the conditions. And only then are we truly effective and only then is he truly glorified. And God deserves glory in the church and in Christ now and forever and ever. Amen, Paul says there. The amen confirms that worthy goal. 
to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. So it's, it's, it's submitting to God. It's our yieldedness to God, turning everything, our life, totally over to Him. It's when He can do anything with us, exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Father, once again, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for your word, Lord. And Father, you are love. Scripture says God is love. God cannot help but do, do anything but love. It's his nature. It's, <clears throat> it's his character, his attribute. It's all that he is. And so he can't, he, he doesn't think about loving us. It just happens. It just, again, because it's natural for God. It's who he is. It's what he does. And as we read here, as Paul said, when, when we are filled to the fullest with God in Christ, then we are able to do all things, anything. And it's not dependent upon anybody or any feeling, or any emotion. So, Father, we thank you. And Lord, help us to choose to do what's right. Because what's right is to glorify you, and, and it's best for us. So, Father, we thank you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's pray for the offering. We'll uh, have some...